0: Hey, ask takers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad that you are here and what I have been doing over the last three weeks. My voice is actually even a little bit hoarse right now because I got off two back-to-back calls with two of my listeners because I am in, what do you even call this? I guess open enrollment slash applications slash phone calls with people who are interested in joining the mentorship. And it's been a few years since I've offered a program like this and had applications to read and then jump on the phone with women who are a good fit to talk to them about it. And y'all, the thing that I... I love so much. The thing that is so amazing to me that I had forgotten about that I forgot was like a side effect that is so selfishly amazing for me is that I get to read about and hear your stories. You listen to me, some of you, every week. Thank you, by the way. And you know all my deepest, darkest secrets. And this is my opportunity to to hear yours and to read yours. So thank you to all of you who have applied. And I'm just honored. I am genuinely, genuinely honored to be the person that you trust to answer the questions that I have on that application. So it's over at yourkickasslife.com slash mentorship. And this program is really for anyone who's ready to do the next level work. I was talking to someone just uh, like 30 minutes ago and I said, this is not a beginner's course for personal development. It really is not. So it's for anyone who you've probably done therapy, You've probably maybe done, signed up for like a digital course or a free course and you listen to podcasts regularly, you read a lot of self-help and you are really ready for the next level. You are already on your way, on your personal development journey and you are ready to, this might sound really cheesy and scary to some of you, but like buckle down and do the work. We have a handful of women who have already joined. I'm capping it at 12 women, super small group. If you think you're ready, um, I would love to talk to you life.com slash mentorship. Okay, so for this particular episode, I'm going to be real with you here for a second. Not that I ever am not, but I was fangirling a little bit when Janine Roth came on the podcast. I have really, really loved her work. I the Probably the book that stood out the most to me, which you'll hear me talk about, is Women, Food, and God. And Janine is one of the pioneers in this industry. And I think that that's why I was fangirling. And I got off the interview and I was like, I had a moment of inner critic meltdown of just like, what the fuck just happened? I just bombed that interview being the interviewer. <laughs> like how does an interviewer bomb? <laughs> oh my God, I just, I was just nervous and she's just such a big deal. And I felt like I was I don't know. I have a feeling I was being way too hard on myself. I'm over it now. I'm just like, whatever. It is what it is, but I think I say that to you because I want y'all to know, it is not every single day that I am my very best self. I try my very best, but there are some days where I might be nervous, where I might be fangirling and have anxiety. It happens to all of us, and I just want to tell you that because I always tell you guys when I struggle as well, and that I saw it happen I'm like, okay, I think I'm really being too hard on myself. Well, so what? I didn't have a perfect day. I had a C plus day. Not my best work. Well, guess what else? The other nine times out of ten, it is my best work. And it's just okay. It is what it is. You probably won't even notice a difference. I don't know if anybody will. Some of you might. That's okay. Um, I don't think it's necessary for you to tell me if I sucked. So, thanks anyway. But before we jump in, there might be like one or two of you who have never heard of Janine Roth. So, let me tell you a little bit about her. <laughs> Janine Roth is the author of 10 books, including the just released This Messy, Magnificent Life and the New York Times bestsellers When Food is Love, Lost and Found and Women, Food and God. She has been teaching groundbreaking workshops and retreats for over 30 years and has appeared on numerous national shows, including The Oprah Winfrey Show, 2020, The Today Show, Good Morning America and The View. So without further ado, here is Janine. Janine, thank you so much for being here. I'm glad to be here with you. I am so excited on so many levels. I think that many of my listeners have read probably more than one of your books, and you have a brand new book out now, which I have had the honor of reading, This Messy, Magnificent Life, A Field Guide. And I know everyone already knows this, but all these links will be in the show notes if you want to grab that. And I want to start, you know, I, I hadn't planned on doing this, but before we had jumped on this morning, Women, Food, and God was actually the first book that I read on this topic. And like many people, it, it was one of those books, I'm sure you've heard this before, where I was like, oh. Somebody wrote about this and <laughs> lives in my head and all of these thoughts and feelings. And of course, I have so many highlights, but I don't know if you do this or if anyone else listening does this, but I like to go back to self-help books that I read years ago and see what I highlighted. Yeah. Uh-huh. See what was going on for me there. And and I do want to focus on, on your newer book, but I would love – to, um, let me, let me, okay. So I was flipping through it. You guys can probably hear me like flipping through the pages and this is from, from women, food, and God, an unexpected path to almost everything. This also will be in the show notes. And for people who might be new to your work, this is what I, highlighted. On page 32, women turn to food when they are not hungry because they are hungry for something they can't name, a connection to what is beyond the corners, the oh, sorry, the concerns of daily life. And then on the following page, they know that something is not quite right in their lives, and because they are not at their ideal weights, they believe that food is the problem and that dieting will fix it. And it doesn't surprise me that I highlighted that. Can you briefly speak to that? And I'm I'm sure that that is something that you hear very often from the women you work with and the women that come to your retreats.
2: Well, I think that wanting something more and deeper and bigger threads through all of our lives, whether we have issues with food or not. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: actually, it was that that I addressed in my new book, because Mm -hmm. I realized that We all want that. We want to feel like we're living out our the promise of ourselves. We can feel it inherently. We know it's there. We have a sense when we're missing our lives, even though we're living our lives, we're missing our lives. And we want that very badly. And we express that. In many different ways and for a while and maybe for a long time, uh, some people express it through their relationship with food and some other people express it through or express the discomfort of not knowing how to do that or what that is through their relationship with work, their colleagues, their Mm -hmm. children, the Internet. There are so many ways to distract ourselves from that knowing and from the discomfort of knowing that and not knowing what to do to actualize that so to speak
0: yes, so many so many yeses in that and i I know that there are a lot of parallels. I have a lot of women that listen to the podcast that struggle with drinking and I, I think there's so many parallels in your books in regards to food and drinking, and some differences. But I also love how it seems, you know, in reading this messy, magnificent life, it seems that probably all of your books, but more even specifically this one, it's it shows the evolution of your own life, which is which is is neat for us to to get and and see that. And how how does this new book relate to your past books, and even more specifically with Woman, Food, and God?
2: Yes, I started this book because I wanted to know and usually I start every book that I've written with a question I'm not always aware of the question when I'm starting to write Mm -hmm. sometimes I'm not aware of the question until I'm halfway into the book Uh, but the question became apparent and that is was it possible to use what I discovered in my relationship with food in the whole rest of my life because I had a hellish relationship with food and with my body for a very, very long time judgmental, shaming self-loathing up and down the scale so much uh, always feeling fat and not good enough and I resolved that relationship (laughs) and I wanted to see if it was possible to use what I learned about that in the whole rest of my life in situations everyday situations that were challenging like being sick being rejected feeling abandoned feeling like a failure feeling like I wasn't good enough Uh, there was a chapter there where I talk about breaking my back, you know, to the, the very challenging everyday situations or the messiness of our lives, which is what the word, uh, this messy, magnificent life refers to there. All of our lives are messy. It's, it's just messy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. You I know, that. <laughs> we have human bodies and we're vulnerable and fragile, no matter how powerful we feel We're vulnerable to having our hearts broken. We're vulnerable to having our bones broken. We're vulnerable Mm -hmm. to getting sick. We're vulnerable to um, the grief of someone we love dying. So there's there's an inherent challenge in being human. There are also fabulous things about it, but there are challenging things about it. And I wanted to see whether it was possible to sort of meet those challenges in the same way that I met the challenge of my relationship with food, which is to say, with openness, with curiosity, with a lot of kindness, with certain tools of learning how to stay in my body, breathe, be in my body, disengage from the judgmental shaming voice, which I call the crazy ant in the attic, Mm -hmm. Uh, be aware of what wasn't wrong on a daily basis. Change those old, old neuro pathways or behavior patterns by focusing on the good. And since we found out that um, that's possible it's actually possible to change the brain and actually change the way we think and therefore the way we feel I wanted to see if that was possible I had been in many years of therapy and also had been engaged in rigorous spiritual practice for decades but somehow it wasn't translating to those everyday situations in my life and so I wrote this book as a way of finding out if it, if it was possible.
0: I, I love that. And I love that you, you know, you have a question to, to, to ask yourself when you, when you write a book and again, so many yeses in that. I think that to me, to live is to be vulnerable. Yes. And and I always say, too, it's like you want to pull all your skeletons out of the closet, get in a relationship with someone, whether that's a deep female friendship or a romantic partnership. <laughs> that's – oh, yeah, that will kick your butt. And I also – I – recorded two podcast episodes. I will throw those in the show notes for everybody listening. A friend of mine came on and we just had – it was not like a We Are the Experts episode. It was here's an honest conversation between two women regarding diet culture. And my friend had recently come to a big epiphany about her own struggles with food and weight and size. And I had been on the journey. I've been on it for about eight years. And to be honest with you, sort of more quietly, it was – it was not an open conversation, I, and I had just sort of realized it when I was talking to my friend, and she was sort of like, why haven't we had this conversation before? And I said, because I knew that you weren't ready, and it was interesting to me to realize how quiet I had been in my own journey on it, but what made me think of it is that you said the word curiosity, and for me, it was – I took about a two-year break from exercising. Because I have a fitness background, uh, I have a degree in exercise physiology, i that was my love and passion and I could not ever remember a time exercising without the sole purpose, the number one goal was to change the size of my body and I decided I was done doing that and if it meant that I just stopped for a while, so be it and what I did was I came at it from a place of curiosity, I just took a step back as the weight started to come on my body. I just got curious about it and threw myself into self compassion. I love that you call your inner critic the crazy ant in the attic. I just, <laughs> I just was sort of like, I mean, for the sake of sounding really strange, it's like I took a step back and was looking at it from another lens and just got fiercely curious about it. And it was so much easier than fighting against it. And I, i back to exercising and for the first time in my life, and can honestly say I am exercising to take care of myself. Yeah. And it was um, – I mean I'll probably get emotional if I talk too much about it. But it was – all of that to say it was everything that you were just talking about. It was – Fear, self compassion, and curiosity, and and I also want to ask you about meditation because you mentioned that you're a meditation failure. I too, as well, have <laughs> struggled <laughs> with that. So tell us what you mean by that, and what do you have any tips? To, <laughs> selfishly asking the question, but I think a, a lot of my listeners tend to be, um, they're you know they tend to be overachievers and all up in their head. So what can you what can you teach us about that?
2: Well. For me, what I mean by that is that I could manage at times to sit quietly. I've been on many meditation retreats where uh, they were silent and we sat and or walked for 45 minutes at a time, 15 hours a day. And there were lovely breakthroughs, but when I got home, They didn't integrate into the rest of my life. And so I wanted to find a meditation, so to speak, um, that that could integrate, would integrate, that would affect how I lived my life, not just for the half an hour Mm -hmm. that I was sitting on a cushion. That's what I mean by that. And then there were, of course, many moments where I was sitting on a cushion where I, too, as an overachiever, felt like I was supposed to be not having any thoughts and I would be over my mind would be overrun by thoughts And, uh, so I felt like a failure in that regard as well, that I wasn't achieving the good meditator badge. And, uh, so I was feeling more like a failure, which of course is not the point of meditation. Right. The point of meditation is really to get to know your mind and to witness the onrush of thoughts and to see this space in which those thoughts are happening in to see that there's something that is always spacious regardless of how crowded your mind might feel the only reason you can notice your thoughts is because there's something there that isn't thinking you know like Mm -hmm. a room if there if a room didn't have space in it you wouldn't be able to see the furniture if all there was in a room was one giant couch The whole thing would be a giant couch. It wouldn't be a room. It would be a couch. So that's how it is with thinking. There's got to be something besides your thoughts. And the point of meditation is to actually see the space, feel the space, and see that you are that space. But that was not happening for me. So that's why I considered myself a failure.
0: Same. I, I What I have done now is I... Just whatever happens when I meditate, I don't judge it. And I used to be voting on it and grading it. And and I have found that to be so helpful that it just it is what it is. When I notice that I'm flooded with thoughts, I just quietly I I like to imagine, I do the same thing when I have insomnia. I imagine me putting all of the thoughts that are just making me not sleep, I put them in drawers (laughs) in my mind, I close the drawers. I don't know. It helps me. (laughs) But it's similar with meditation, just like escorting them out of the room. Okay, thank you for being here. It's your time to leave. And sometimes I do that over and over again during my
2: meditation. Well, I think what's important is that people understand there isn't just one kind of meditation. There isn't meditation can also be any activity that you do that brings you into the present moment. So for some people sitting on a cushion is not and will never be it. Mm-hmm. Moving will, does it allow you to heighten your awareness, to be aware that you have a body, that this body is being held on the earth by gravity, that these bodies' feet are touching the earth, that you have hands, that you have legs. Does it allow you to be present? to you? Because anything in which... Your alertness, awakeness, awareness is getting heightened and the thoughts, therefore, go into the background moving. If you're really aware of the feeling of your feet on the ground of the movement of your legs and your breath, that also is a meditation. So the meditation has been defined a little too narrowly in my opinion.
0: Great advice. I, I absolutely am I'm grateful for that little piece of advice because I think that we tend to, and I'm, I'm fairly certain that a lot of my listeners feel this way, we are disconnected from our bodies. And that can be an amazing meditation. <laughs> I also want to circle back to what you said about the crazy ant in the attic, because we talk a lot about the inner critic here. I give all kinds of tips and have a, a course on it and everything, but I love when guests come on and tell me their own tips and, I, and and different names for it. And so can you, in your own words, tell us what that is and how do you teach people to deal with it?
2: Yes. Well, everybody's got one of these voices, every single person who – has lived beyond the age of four years old Mm -hmm. (laughs) as a voice, because it's a developmental necessity. We all need to learn how to be amongst other people, how not to throw food on the wall, how not to bite people's hands, how to say please and thank you and uh, not throw tantrums in public like that. Mm -hmm. And, do that by internalizing external authority voices. That's how we do it. We're taught to do it. And that that coagulation of voices becomes the superego or what I call the crazy ant in the attic and women, food and God. I called it the GPS from the twilight zone uh, because. It is adaptive at the beginning, and we need that when we're kids, but it has now become maladaptive. What happens is that voice functions to keep us small, to keep us from growing, to keep us obeying the status quo. And so the the hard part of that voice being so active in all of us and there is a whole chapter in this messy, magnificent life about this. It's called Hoodwinked by Suffering, um, because this has really been something that has been a challenge for me to work with. And I'm continuing to work with it. I don't feel like that I've arrived in any sense. No. Although what I consider growth is that now it comes up, I recognize it. And most of the time I don't get involved in it, but it's not that it doesn't come up. And so most of, for most of us, what happens is that when we start growing, when we start feeling bigger, I'm not talking about size wise, I'm talking about more powerful, mm-hmm. that voice comes in and squashes us down because now we're going against the status quo. And the purpose of that voice is to keep us within certain rigid limits. And and so unless we name and work with that voice and disengage from it, any kind of change isn't possible. So it's important to name it and mostly it's important for us to see that for the most part, unless we've really worked with it, we are identified with that voice. We listen to that voice. Mm -hmm. We believe that voice. Think that voice is telling the truth, and until we can disengage from that voice and understand that that voice is not our friend, and understand that we need to separate from it, really separate from it, then um, no change is possible. And how that happens? Is, is by recognition, you know, I, I often say that seeing is freeing. So yes, we do a lot of work with disengaging from that voice in my retreats, we, you know, we spend a couple of days, or I should say a couple of sessions, learning how to disengage, naming it, saying no to it, using humor to disengage from it, Um, Any number of things that different methods work for different people. But the most important one is to name it, to see it, to recognize that it's not our friend. And I just did this last week with a group of people that I worked with a couple of hundred women and I just for a couple of hours, I was I was spending the afternoon with them, and I had asked them to write down ten criticisms they'd made about themselves since they'd walked in the door. <laughs> and um, There were many of them. And then I asked one of them to say it in the say it out loud, share it with the group in the voice that she talked to herself in, and that voice is so shaming. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if we believe, and that voice will say things like. I can't believe you didn't wash your hair today, and uh, I can't believe you wore socks, or I can't believe you said that to that person in that disgusted, repulsive voice. And if we believe it, we are down a rabbit hole. We are lost. We are walk around with the tail between our legs for the rest of the day or week or year.
0: I'm with you. I'm so glad you do that in your retreats. To me, that is foundational work. And I remember the very first time I learned about that probably a decade ago, I remember thinking, wait a minute. You mean I have the power to manage that and, can, you know, for – pretty much control it. And I just, it was like mind blowing, like, holy crap. And just the realization. I often tell people when they do that work, sometimes it gets worse before it gets better because when you sort of uncover how badly you've been speaking to yourself, because I think for a lot of women, it's on repeat all the time. It's like this background music that they don't even know
2: is going on. Do you find that to be true? Yes. I've noticed that in myself. Yeah. Notice that unless I'm really, really careful, and it can happen for many people in the simplest things, you notice somebody else's, you're looking at your Instagram account. Yeah. I knew you were talking about social media. (laughs) Yep. And then you see how many people are following them and, and the people that are liking what they say. And suddenly, in comparative judgment... Is an indication of this voice. Yes. And so you start comparing your Instagram account to their Instagram account or your Facebook page to their and or what it looks like they're doing with all of the pictures that they post. And and so you're comparing their outsides to your insides mm-hmm. coming up short each time. And it can just start just like that. And so it's crucial to catch it in the very beginning. And the way you catch it is by a sinking feeling most of the time. Now, some people real for some people, it's not sensate like that. It's not, there's a pit in their stomach or their heart feels like it's sinking, or there's a heaviness in their chest. Some people feel small and collapsed and paralyzed. Other people feel it as a sinking feeling. But if you catch it at the very beginning, That's your – I mean, of course, you can catch it at any place along the spectrum, but you can stop it in its tracks the sooner you see it, the sooner you stop it.
0: Yes. That's really the answer. That's what I teach people, that it's not – it's not a matter of eradicating it. It's And I'm so glad that you were talking about how it's universal. Everyone has it. It's just a part of the human experience. And it's about catching it as quickly as possible. And not, I've seen that in my own life where I, I have a mantra that I say, I say, well, that just happened. And it's not, you know, I'm not telling it to piss off. I'm not doing anything really except – neutralizing it and just acknowledging like, oh, there you are, instead of just like letting it come in the room and like make itself breakfast. So it's just, I see it and then move on to something else. And I have found that to be the most helpful. I know that I have lots of tools for for people to choose from, but I, I think that that is such important work and Oh my gosh. Yes, 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 yes. So we just, I have one more question for you. I love to ask this question to, to especially women who, who work in with clients and workshops and retreats like you do. And, and that is what, if anything surprises you about the work you do with women, either now or in the last couple decades, you've been doing this.
2: Well, I would say there are a couple of things. One is the joy of working with women, that I feel each time I'm with a group of women, the the earnestness, the willingness to tell the truth, to share, and also the willingness. And we didn't quite, you know, the, the next step after the critic or the crazy aunt in the attic is replacing that voice with a kindness Mm -hmm. voice, and then going to actually the next step, which I see that women are willing to do all the time. And I ask the question, almost always, tell me five things that are not wrong right now. And that changes the mood the the circuitry the way you're thinking and seeing because we see what we believe and or we believe what we see see what we believe so if your beliefs actually determine what you see so if you're telling yourself you're a lowly failure then when you look you'll see that you'll find evidence of that Mm -hmm practicing and all it takes is 12 seconds five times a day according to the brain scientist that's 1 minute a day 12 seconds um five times a day where you ask yourself what's not wrong and you let it sink into your body mm. and Really experience it. It's not enough to check it off your gratitude list. It's you've got to really feel it in your body because to change anything, and I see that women are really willing to do this. I am always moved when I'm working in a group of women that they're willing really to change. They're open. They're okay, good. What's the next what's the next horizon? How big, how powerful is it possible for me to be? And it happens in baby steps. It doesn't happen by having the ideal vision and thinking you have to get there. Every step is one step at a time today, right now. What can you do? Right now, what can you do? I love that. I actually say turtle
0: steps because sometimes I think baby steps are even are even big, but I haven't heard that brain science yet. 12 seconds, five times a day, totaling one minute of, of self-compassion and self-kindness and grace. And I, I love that. You guys, This Messy Magnificent Life, A Field Guide, Janine Roth, the link is in the show notes. Please go out and get it. I highly recommend it. Thank you so much for being here, Janine. Yeah, thank you so much, Andrea. And everyone, I know you know this, but I say it every time. I'm so grateful for your time today because I know how valuable that is. Thank you so much. And until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.